we will go from there. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Dr. Jim Brosnan. I'm one of your co-hosts for the uh, May edition of Tennessee Turf Tuesday. Um, we've got a, a really full program today, big group. We all, we all know each other, and I'll inter introduce our guests here in a moment. Um, want to get through a little bit of business. Uh, I know many of you uh, who join Turf Tuesdays every month are here, um, not only for the topic, but you're here for your, uh, whether it's pesticide credits or continuing education credits from our different uh, professional associations. So I just kind of want to give a little bit of an overview of how that all works. For those of you who have been to Turf Tuesdays in the past or, or engaged with us in the past, um, you're very familiar. All of the information you need for your pesticide credits in the states for which we've been awarded credit um, is captured when you registered on Zoom. So uh, when you registered for today's session, you put in your name, your contact information, what state you wanted your pesticide recertification credits in, uh, as well as your license number. Zoom will use that to populate a roster, uh, which then we will uh, submit to your state Department of Ags. Uh, so you can have uh, participation in today's session on goosegrass uh, reflected uh, in your accreditation totals. Um, those of you that are watching this on YouTube as a recorded session or, or listening to this uh, on our podcast channel, um, unfortunately, there are no pesticide credits for archived view viewings. Uh, only live viewings are, are awarded pesticide accreditation. You should also note that Zoom uh, will track how long you are with us today. And the departments of agriculture that have made pesticide credits available uh, for Turf Tuesdays, they want you to be with us for the duration of the hour. Uh, so make sure you stay with us for the duration of the hour. Uh, we will do our best to respect the time and, and get you off and on to lunch uh, in an efficient manner. If you have questions uh, as we go along, you will see that there is a Q&A box on the bottom of your screen. And we would uh, ask that you pose your questions there um, rather than in the other platforms for which you can communicate with us as panelists. The reason for that is twofold. One, uh, it keeps the uh, questions and the answers threaded. And two, it gives us the opportunity uh, to answer many of your questions aloud. We know that uh, this is by and large an audio format, so we're gonna do our best um, to uh, answer your questions aloud as they come. I think that kind of covers all of the uh, nuts and bolts uh, under the hood business stuff for today's session. Um, I'd like to introduce, uh, we've got several colleagues here with us. We all know each other, and I know many of you listening might not know them, so we're going to go around and have them introduce themselves here in a moment. Uh, we've got Tyler Carr, who's a graduate student uh, working for Dr. Sorokin, who is uh, going to help us kind of run uh, today's session. Uh, my co-hosts, Dr. Brandon Horvath and Dr. John Sorokin from the University of Tennessee. And then our guests today are Dr. Travis Gannon, uh, from North Carolina State University and Dr. Matt Elmore uh, from Rutgers University in New Jersey. So before we get into goosegrass, uh, for those of you um, who might not be familiar with our guests, why don't we do a little bit of brief introduction about who you are and why you're here, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Matt, do you want to start? Sure, yeah. <clears throat> My name is Matt Elmore. I work at Rutgers University right now. I've been here about five years. Uh, my specialty is Similar to Dr. Brosnan's turf grass weed control. And so I'm in the Northeast, although I actually 
started my career as a graduate student at the University of Tennessee and got both my degrees from the University of Tennessee working with Jim um, and everyone else there. Then I moved to Texas uh, to work in turf at Texas A&M and now I'm up, up in New Jersey. So really my focus is cool season turf grass. Uh, we've been working a lot with weeds that kind of seem to be moving up from the southeastern United States into cool season turf and establishing them, establishing themselves as new weed problems. So it's great to be here today and I look forward to talking with everyone. All right, don't be shy. Who's next? Travis, you want to go next? Sure. Uh, good morning. It's my pleasure to be with you all. Uh, I'm Travis Gannon. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences at NC State University. Uh, we, we all collaborate on a number of different projects and uh, you know, a lot of my research focuses on uh, not only weed control, but also, you know, different factors that affect uh, herbicide fate and behavior with the mindset of minimizing potential adverse effects, whether it be human or environmental, uh, all the while increasing efficacy and, and, and or optimizing efficacy. Uh, so again, it's, it's my pleasure to be with you all this morning and very much look forward to interacting. All right. Any of the UT folks want to say hello? I think many of our listeners probably know who you are by now. I think they know us. Yeah. All right. So let's, um, today's session was titled, Is Goosegrass the New POA? And we kind of thought, at least I did, what we'd talk about, but we got some news last week. Um, I'm going to share my screen um, for those watching. We got some news on oxidiazon um, that is a logical jumping off point. When I uh, made kind of the outline of what we might talk about today, this was last. And then on Friday, it jumped to first. Um, Travis, do you want to give folks a little bit of background on the oxidiazon situation? And we'll just kind of talk about what we've learned over the past year with it. Sure, sure. Yeah, so, you know, not not to get into the weeds uh, too deeply, but so every pesticide must be rewritten, doesn't matter if it's a herbicide, fungicide, insecticide, whatever. Uh, in the U.S., it must be reviewed at least once every 15 years. And, what you know, many people don't necessarily understand what the review is. And basically, for products like Oxidizing or Ronstar, which have been registered for a number of years, they're still required to be uh, reviewed or in some cases it's called referred to as re-registration. And again, that must occur at least once every 15 years uh, in the US. Now, products that have issues that arise or if, uh, you know, if something changes, in many cases, they're reviewed more frequently than that. But by federal law, they must be reviewed uh, at least once every 15 years. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure Jim has mentioned it several times in you all's um, previous meetings, but, you know, the, the news that came out in August of 21 was a proposed interim decision, um, which is followed by a comment period. And, you know, not, not to get ahead here, but, you know, that, those proposed interim decisions, you know, in, in some cases, you know, whatever is proposed is, is what's ultimately adopted. Uh, in, in this case, uh, you know, there were some exceptions to that and some positive exceptions at that. And, but, you know, and we'll talk about the specifics later, but, you know, I, I would just uh, take this opportunity um, 
you know, to always be active in, you know, because I mean, these comment periods are just that is for end users for commodity groups, or associations to, to weigh in on what the, um, you know, how the proposed changes will affect the way you do business. And it not only uh, has to do with, you know, pest control, but also, you know, ancillary things like in the case of oxidizing a Ronstar on athletic fields, you know, you really don't have a good option, a good pre-emergent option. And when you start talking about, or alternative rather to oxidizing, and when you start talking about pulling that use site, which was what was in the original uh, proposed interim decision, you know, you, you come up with other uh, potential issues, namely, um, you know, athlete safety or player safety, uh, because if you, you know, if you're using some of these other alternatives, which uh, inhibit lateral spread and recovery, you know, all of a sudden you have a safety issue at hand. And so I'm saying all this to say that, you know, when these comment periods are open and the oxidizing one was a little bit uh, less than straightforward, most of the time there's 60 days, but that one didn't get distributed um, per normal protocol, if you will. So uh, that one was a little bit uh, convoluted, but nonetheless, uh, I just take this opportunity to remind you all to, you know, stay engaged. And when you have an opportunity to, uh, to respond, you know, the agency, they actually read uh, you know, all the comments that come back. And, you know, I think this is one of the prime examples of them taking uh, feedback and using it constructively to, uh, to form their quote unquote final decision, which was released, I guess, I guess technically it was released Saturday, but yeah. late last week. Well, and, and, you know, I mean, you make good points about getting involved. I mean, we were all, we were involved in as, you know, subject matter experts, you and, and, and Matt, myself and several others in, in submitting a letter. And I mean, I think Travis, you and I sat on some GCSAA Golf Course Superintendents Association. Um, I don't know what committee it would fall under within their purview that engages with EPA, but uh, we participated in those sessions. And I know STMA uh, submitted uh, stakeholder letters of support because, you know, as you said, the the original proposal was to delete sports field use uh, in its entirety, uh, which was pretty significant. And then TPI uh, was also involved as, as well, because there were some pretty significant restrictions being proposed for sod farms to go along with the, the golf uses that would have eliminated greens use, eliminated tea use, um, eliminated rough use, um, just kind of really made it harder for people to use the use the product for goosegrass control. And, you know, based on our data, it's probably the premier goosegrass active, if not one of them. I mean, would you say the same, Matt? It's it's up there when we think about pre's for goosegrass? Yeah, certainly. It's I'd say it's the gold standard in this region. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, obviously, you know, you don't you don't have the luxury and cool season turf for using something like spectacle. But I have to think with what we'll talk about a little later with the thiopyr resistance or prodiamine resistance, this is going to become an even more important active for you here forward. Yeah. Yeah. It was going to be a significant problem if some of this, you know, if we didn't get some of these uses back, especially in cool season turf. So it was nice to see, nice to see that, you know, there was some back and forth there between end users and the EPA. Well, in, in two, but yeah. Just as an outsider, because this, I mean, it happens to us in fungicides as well, but 
uh, just to kind of double click on the, the need to comment, it's really easy for end users to think, oh, well, my association will take care of that, or the extension specialist at the university will take care of that. And what they need to understand is that these agencies view each of those groups as separate in, you know, groups. So, and they take what individuals say with, with, you know, they, they know that there's going to be an association that's going to lobby for a particular use or whatever. But when an end user says, this is going to directly affect my ability to do business, that's, that carries a weight that I don't necessarily think that some of the lobbying things carry, uh, or at least I've not seen that. It, it seems like, so it's important not just to rely on your associations, but to individually comment as well, I think. Well, I think that's fair. And, and, you know, one of the things I'll say that was, this was like a rookie experience for me. I've never been involved in, in any one of these. Um, and in reading the final document that was released by the EPA late last week, um, Travis is right. I mean, every end user comment is in there. Um, yeah, you know, right. I, had, I had my doubts about, we submitted this big letter with 19 university lead scientists, whether that would even be read or it would just kind of go into a vacuum. And it was definitely read and it is addressed in their documentation in, in detail what we uh, communicated to them, which was really exactly. Cool. And, 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 and I think the other thing that's important for people to understand is that, that if there's one thing that the federal government particularly takes extremely seriously is that when, when it's, codified in statute that there is a response period and that those responses will be accounted for, et cetera. They take that kind of stuff the same way we talk about that the label is the law and that you have to follow the label to follow the law. Like they take, it is, you know, taking those comments into account is part of the law. And so they, they follow that and, and account for those things. And I think the other thing to keep in mind too, is that it's very easy when you see some of these things come out, like the preliminary decision where it's going to eliminate all these uses to fly off the handle and write some sort of social media type comment letter to the EPA. That's the kind of stuff that they don't take seriously. So if you fly off the handle with a bunch of, of you know, the, the sky is falling kind of things, it's far better to, to very uh, almost dryly document your uses, how you use it, how it's going to affect your bottom line, what your alternatives are and why those alternatives are not acceptable and, and just very, very dryly kind of productively comment on those uses. That's a huge piece of the puzzle. Yeah, agreed. Um, and I'll say that from the interactions Travis and I had with the EPA on this, they were pretty appreciative of the dialogue in, in the meetings and having some things about use and turf brought to their attention that maybe they weren't aware of. I mean, one of the things that speaks, um, comes to that list right away, Travis, is the, the conversations we had about irrigation and how the, the herbicide is irrigated into the soil in order to work effectively. Um, they were very appreciative of that being brought to their attention. Right. Well, and I, I think it also, it also shows, you know, I think all of us on this panel can can testify to the fact that almost every time that the economic impact of our industry, like writ large, so we're talking from sod production to cemetery to airport, whatever, that when that economic impact is actually looked at, 
and evaluate it, it's always a mind blowing thing because people take for granted that around every building, around every doctor's office that they go to, around every college campus that they visit, around every park that they go to, there's turf grass there. And that turf grass generally is managed at some level. And one of the base level management practices is some form of basic pre-emergent weed control, right? And that gets missed by somebody that's a regulator for the EPA. They don't, they don't wrap their head around that. So when they just drop off these uses, they don't think that it's going to be, you know, oh, there's not that many sports fields. Well, it turns out there are because they're in every park and, and, and those kinds of things. So I think it's important that, that we always are highlighting that in our comment as well. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, just, to kind of get through the what was the final verdict here because i know that you know we've got a lot of folks that manage lawn care here and this isn't much of a lawn care product but has its places in parks uh as well as golf and and sports turf and sod farms um there were really kind of six key action items with the final decision the first is that oxidiazon herbicides so ron star and then and then anything else with oxidiazon in it would become a restricted use product limited for use by certified applicators. Um, number two is that the oxidazon use will continue for, uh, for golf, sports fields, parks, and sod production. Number three, there were some rate changes. Um, the single application use rate uh, is capped at three pounds AI per acre. Uh, many of you listening may remember that um, there was some burbage on the existing oxidazon labels for applications to go out in high weed pressure situations at four pounds AI per acre. Um, that'll continue on golf courses um, if they're using a granular product. If, if, if it's only liquid delivery, as I understand it, guys, it's, it's, it's going to be a, a three pound AI uh, application, six pound AI per year total. We had some long conversations about intervals between applications and, and when, what would make sense based on, you know, obviously, Matt, in New Jersey, your, your application re-intervals there in terms of when you would need to make a sequential are going to be very different than maybe when you were formerly in Texas. Um, yeah. There on. may not even be a need for reapplications in New Jersey from some, you know, a lot of our data shows. So definitely different. Yeah, because you're, you're, you your season shorter um, for a, a summer annual weed like this. Um, number five, golf course playing surfaces, all, all playing surface types will remain fairways, roughs, greens, and tees. However, they did put a cap that less than or equal to 30% of the total managed turf grass area can be treated in a year. Um, and then the final point is that golf courses and sod farms need to have a 10 foot vegetative buffer when treating areas adjacent to surface water. I mean, that's kind of the, the overview, um, you know, we were before we hopped on today's session, we were chatting about how that 30% number on golf courses might be. I don't know, what would you guys say? A little bit of a hindrance to some based on the footprint of the facility? Yeah, definitely right on the line. I think for you know, if you're thinking of this as a fairway product, you know, it depends on your course, but the average golf course might be at you know 150 acres, 100 of that might be managed turf, so you're looking at maybe 30 acres of use um i think it's right on the line for a lot of us where it's applied to the fairways now we were also talking about some of those more subtropical tropical locations where it's applied across the entire golf course almost or the entire area of managed turf so 
you might want to comment on that. But. Yeah. So is is uh, so is is goosegrass an issue in like Arizona, Phoenix, like those kinds of places where you might have like most of the managed turf grass is actually fairway green tea, and that's it. I mean, I don't know for sure, Travis. I think you've done some work out in the desert southwest. You care to chime in on that? I've never yeah, worked out there. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly an issue, but nothing like uh, as in the southeast and in the deep south. So, okay. yeah. Because that's that's one of the areas where I would think that that would be a real problem if you could only, you know, apply 30% of the area. That's when yeah. it's only greens, tees, and fairways. That's tricky. <laughs> Basically, it seems like to me that you you just want to have, you know, and this kind of fits into the discussion that you guys are having now with herbicide resistance issues that that you want to have some sort of rotational strategy, you know, that thinks about these kinds of limitations of, okay, well, if I applied it to roughs this year and I then I want to apply something different to my fairways, tees, and greens, and then if I apply it to fairways, tees, and greens or you know, fairways and tees or whatever that you just want to have a rotational strategy built in that you're, you're applying different, different things to different areas. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think what, right, what you all have hit on is just going to force people to think more long-term and, you know, think about rotating their oxidizing across different parts of, if you're on the golf course, different parts of the golf course, and uh, which, you know, with I mean, we should be doing that anyway. Right. I mean, we lean too heavily on uh, certain compounds, in this case, oxidizing um, and don't do a very good job in some cases of rotating uh, across different actives and across different modes of action. So I think it'll just force people. I mean, it is a little bit restrictive, the 30 percent thing. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know all the pesticide laws and in Tennessee, I'm not familiar with all of them, but you know, the, the big thing in North Carolina is when it becomes restricted use, you're required to keep a lot of uh, more detailed records. And, you know, I, I would just caution people that, you know, that there, there's a little bit of chatter out there that people, well, we'll just continue to use it the same way we have. Well, that's, that's your choice, but you know, everyone needs to be cognizant that with it being a restrict, becoming a restricted use pesticide, you know, you're required to keep a lot more detailed records and, you know, it doesn't take somebody very long to calculate area on the golf course uh, with whatever Google earth and compare that against how much you used. And, you know, it, it's, uh, and that, that's one of the reasons EPA uh, elected to make it restricted use was just to keep a closer tab on how much was used and where it was used. So I think that's uh, a good reminder for end users. Travis, we had a question come in in the Q&A box. 30% of total acres or 30% of total managed acres? I believe it's managed turf, right? It, it is. The verbiage in the docket is managed turf. And managed is going to include anything that is turf grass covered that you could conceivably manage at some level, right? I would imagine, yeah. I mean, uh, I, so go ahead, Travis. I would agree. Uh, and at the end of the day, I, I think, and I'm uh, speculating here a little bit, but I think that's going to, um, you know, quote unquote, be uh, regulated by the 
uh, individual state departments of ag, uh, but it, it's in the docket, it's managed turf. And, you know, what, what is managed turf? Well, if you, you know, that's, that's oh, pretty, once a year, right? Right. <laughs> like a li little bit ambiguous, right? Well, a lot of golf courses have put in those no mow areas that they keep native, but you know, they they'll go in once or twice a year to mow down the broadleafs or the, you know, the woodies that are starting to emerge. So that could technically be managed turf. Many right. of those sites are sprayed. Yeah. Right. For, for weed management to try to keep them with the desirable species they want in there and the undesirables out, which to me, that's managed. Yeah. Definitely. A, definitely a broadleaf is used a lot. Yeah, it's back to one of our, one of our friends that, likes to call those highly managed turf uh, tall grass areas <laughs> as opposed yeah. to yeah yeah i don't know that they're naturalized all that much based yeah. on how they're actually maintained maintained right so switching gears out of ronstar um where do you guys want to go you want to talk resistance you want to talk emergence i mean i didn't mean to do that i hit the wrong button i was trying to close the box Oh, no worries. You guys want to talk resistance? You want to talk emergence? I know I'm getting emergence questions. I tweeted a picture the other day. I'll share that here in a minute. Um, saw my first emerged goosegrass of the year uh, on April 29th. Um, Matt, I know you've been doing um, emergence modeling. You want yeah. to talk a little bit about kind of where that's at? Yes, it's, it's been a little bit of a frustrating endeavor to actually try to model it. But, you know, we're talking about emergence because all the, a lot of our main tools for weed control are pre-emergence herbicides, at least our most economical and effective. So obviously we need to get them out before goosegrass emerges from seed in the springtime. And that's a little bit tricky to try to pinpoint. And at least especially with talking with stakeholders here in New Jersey is you know, when does it actually come up? We don't really see it here. You don't see the large plants until mid-July. Um, but one of the things we found is actually, you know, that it's actually emerging in mid-May typically here in New Jersey. So we've kind of tried to put some temperature uh, parameters around that. Uh, um, the one thing that's been interesting is it's so variable from site to site, even on the sites where we did our research. So, um, you know, generally it came up in mid-May and we sort of put a, a growing degree day value on that, which was about, you know, 55 degree base temperature. So whenever we had temperatures, uh, when we were accumulating, you know, five to 10 growing degree days Celsius above 12 C for several days, a few days in a row, we typically saw emergence. So basically when your average temperature is, you know, probably around 65 degrees, so that's day and nighttime temps um, for a few days, we, we typically saw emergence. I'd say that's more of a rule of thumb than anything. And we looked at soil temperatures. The soil temperatures usually had to hit at least 65 degrees in the middle of the day for a few days in a row. Um, but that's New Jersey. It could be, you know, totally different um, depending on where you are in the country. I think the thing that we found is, well, it emerges a little bit sooner than we think it does, right? Because, you know, in this part of the country, we don't see it till the 4th of July. Usually you don't start to think about it, but it actually, again, comes up in early May. And I think the general consensus was, well, maybe it's actually coming up in June. But again, generally in our kind of fairway type areas, we've, we've kind of seen that mid-May timing. We have not seen it yet this year, but I know, Jim, you have down there in Tennessee. So our soils are 
right, right around 60 degrees in the middle of the day right now. So I, I think we're getting close, but, um, yeah, we have, we've really struggled to put a good, you know, model behind it. Again, I think there's a big factor of biotype as well. You know, we've seen it with resistance relative to crabgrass in terms of herbicide resistance, where goosegrass tends to have this propensity to develop herbicide resistance more so than other weeds, kind of similar to annual bluegrass, which I guess is the title of our Why it's talk a new today. Ball. Yeah, so it has this propensity to adapt. Um, and I think we may be seeing that with emergence as well, um, you know, on golf courses where, you know, maybe you had a strong pre-emergence program, you know, maybe that emergence is delayed as that plant, the biotypes there have adapted to letting that pre-emergent run out and then germinating, whereas others, we've seen it very early and it, it almost the whole population, you know, germinates within a month, uh, where others, it's germination is stretched out through the whole summer. So, you know, I'd say that the, the general rule there was what I tried to put out was, you know, soil temps that get up to 65 during the day at about two inches. Um, but it's, it's, you know, I think, again, I don't know what you've seen in terms of calendar day. That almost might be just as easy as trying to put one of these models behind it, Jim. Well, I mean, it's interesting, you know, that photo was taken um, probably after three or four days where we had high temperatures over 80 full sunlight looking into our soil temperature stuff we, we cracked over that 65 fahrenheit number and we've got some emergence um and then have since dipped back below uh, underneath that again to only creep up uh later on this week um above 65 but yeah i'm like you matt you know i i don't think we have a a singular flush event i think that we have multiple goosegrass emergence opportunities for goosegrass emergence in a year. I mean, Travis, I don't know if you were involved. There was some work done in the Carolinas a couple of years ago where I think they showed that you can have goosegrass emergence in, in August that'll still produce a viable seed, right? Correct. Correct. Which yeah. speaks and, to the need for residual. Right, right. Right. And I'll just echo what you all have mentioned. But, you know, in North Carolina, late uh, March, we were actually um, in the low 60s for the 24 hour mean soil temperature. But the whole month of April has just been a roller coaster. And we've been above uh, in the mid 60s a couple of times and then dip back down uh, even to the I mean, we had a frost uh, April 12th, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, we have emergence, goosegrass emergence east of Raleigh, and in particular as you go in the southern, southern portion of the coastal plain. But in the Piedmont region, we've not seen, in turf areas, in bare areas we have, but in the Piedmont region, we have not seen um, uniform goosegrass emergence, but I'm sure it will be very soon. Well, and what's interesting to me, and I don't know if you've seen this on the other side of the mountain, but it feels like you see emergence in higher height of cut turf first, which right. kind of goes against, you know, logic that for us, greens populations tend to be some of the last to emerge. The last to emerge. Right. Yeah. We've observed a similar uh, phenomenon. It's, it's, it's like you said, it's not necessarily intuitive. Do you, do you think that's, that's more plant density kind of competition effect versus the, the soil temperature, you know, maybe being a little warmer in one spot versus the other, that it's also related to the, the openings or voids allowing light to penetrate and 
I think that certainly has, I think it's due to a number of factors. And in my opinion, uh, what Jim and uh, uh, Elmore hit on with, you know, the particularly the different uh, biotypes, you know, I, I don't know that we know a whole lot about all the different types of uh, goosegrass biotypes and ones we're selecting for based on management or herbicide inputs. I, I don't think we have a good, and maybe, Dr. Elmore can elaborate on that, but I don't think we uh, have a good ha handle on the genetic diversity and the different biotypes that are present in different parts of the course and different geographic regions, et cetera, et cetera. But I think to answer your question, I think it's due to a number of factors, including plant density and soil temps, among other things. Yeah. So, sure, so population biology has to play a role too, right? So there's absolutely is, is goosegrass a, an outcrosser or a sulfur? I believe it. Yeah, Matt, do you say sulfur? Yeah, highly sulfing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, I, think, I, mean, I think once you get populations in your particular area, they're going to be relatively similar. But what populations are successful, you know, have probably evolved to compete well in that situation. Yeah, to be adapted in that environment, right? Yeah. And I agree about? with Travis. There's a lot we don't know about when is it coming up and I, uh, go ahead, Jim. I was going to say, you just think about like in bank grass on a green, there's a it's got to be a cumulative stress effect in our region to make those opportunities manifest later, Brandon, right? You know, whether that's a disease scar, uh, the buildup of traffic around cleanup passes, uh, et cetera, that's just going to make that opportunity maybe a little bit deeper into the summer season. Sure. And, and you certainly would have to imagine that that a population that's going to be adapted for, you know, emerging on a, on a, on a height of cut that's much lower than, than a lawn height of cut, that those are two different, you know, sets of plants that have to be selected for with all of those kinds of pressures. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that when we think about control far too often, the end of the thoughts kind of end, you know, by Memorial Day, no one's thinking about goosegrass control anymore, but the data are pretty clear that if you have some escapes that are present in July or August, they're going to produce viable seed and just help the population continue into the next subsequent season. Yeah, we even see in late August, early September seedings where goosegrass is the prime weed that infests those seeding areas. And usually when we seed and late August, mid-September, you know, we think, well, we've escaped all the summer annuals. Now's a good time to seed, but it's, in some cases, it's not always the case. I can share a screen share real quick of just, you know, we've talked about modeling and all these biotypes and everything's different, but one thing, you know, that could help at your facility or your, your properties are just, you know, scouting for goosegrass seedlings. Can we all see that? Or did I? Yep, yep you're good. Okay, so, you know, getting down on the ground and looking for seedlings isn't always you know, the most fun, but you can try to scout some of these areas that have been historically problematic and try to figure out, okay, when does goosegrass emerge? When does crabgrass emerge? And trying to differentiate grass seedlings in, in the spring is difficult. I mean, one thing that's common of all grasses is that they're going to have one seed leaf. And if you can catch that seed leaf here, you know, sounds like in Tennessee now or soon. And then as we move farther north, <clears throat> could be a couple more weeks. But if you can catch them when they're at that seed stage, seedling stage, you can usually identify them with goosegrass. You notice 
on the left-hand side of the screen here, those, those cotyledons and the seed leaves are, are very ridged um, or have that appearance compared to the crabgrass on the right, which is again, the other grass that's gonna dominate in these areas. The crabgrass leaf tip is also a little bit more pointed, at least on the seed leaf, if we compare to the goosegrass, um, at least that initial seed leaf. So again, those are just some things to, to help there. You know, if you wanna start to learn how to scout for this weed, um, that might be one way to sort of adapt, you know, sort of tweak some of these rules of thumb we've talked about in terms of temperature, adapt them a little bit to your facility maybe, so. So Matt, based on your work the past few years, I mean, you've been doing more goosegrass control and cool season work, cool season turf, I mean, maybe anyone. Anything you, you feel really strong about from a control standpoint in cool season turf, particularly in lawns, maybe? Yeah, in lawns, well, yeah, so in lawns where our, you know, our primary pre-emergence oxidizon is not available, I, and I think I see goosegrass more common in municipal areas where there's a lot of traffic. Uh, there's a lot of thin turf, those sorts of areas. Occasionally we see it in lawns. I think regardless of where it is, you know, we don't, I think, understand enough about goosegrass ecology to make a whole lot of recommendations on how we can really integrate herbicides with other things. I think the biggest thing is it is a weed that is um, more problematic where turf competition or even competition from other species is poor. So we usually see that in the bare areas. Goosegrass, for some reason, is adapted to these high traffic bare areas and it's competitive there, whereas it's not going to be competitive where we don't have a lot of wear. Um, we've even seen a lot of times we usually see, you know, you have a bare area and there's crabgrass in there. The crabgrass is much more competitive than the goosegrass. It's not until you put some kind of factor of wear or traffic that that goosegrass then gets the competitive advantage. So I think the one thing is it's taught us is it's a poorly competitive weed. We've also done some work looking at nitrogen and mowing height that we started last year. And basically we found as you increase the mowing height, um, you know, and along with it, the nitrogen, you get less goosegrass. So it's not as competitive in a dense stand of turf as crabgrass. Um, so that's one factor is understanding, trying to mitigate that with either fall seeding and cool season turf or just uh, more nitrogen fertility or that sort of thing. Um, and then potentially core cultivation in high traffic areas to allow that turf to grow. And then the other thing is herbicide programs. You just got to you know, know where it was the year before and treat the plants before they're too large. It gets very difficult to control once the plants get large. So those would be the two keys. And, you know, we don't need to get into all the details on herbicides right now, unless you want to, but I think I, I try to keep those things in the back of my head. If I'm getting, if I you know, want to manage goosegrass. Well, and, and from a, you know, a resistance standpoint, you're a little bit up against it with the pre's because, you don't have a whole lot of mode of action diversity other than, than group three products, right? I mean, yeah. in, you know, barricade resistance in goosegrass is pretty well documented. And now you've been working with dimension resistance, right? Yeah. So we found some populations that uh, are resistant to dimension, which is to thigh up here. Those populations are also resistant to barricade, um, which is protiamine and pendimethylin. So we can't really rotate there. Um, and those are really primary pre-emergence herbicides in this region. So I think there's this resistance may actually be pretty widespread. We're working to confirm that right now. Um, so we basically have, you know, these plants have adapted and there's a genetic mutation that uh, these herbicides are completely ineffective in the field. So increasing rate is not an option in this case. It's really rotating. And the only rotation we have for pre-emergence is oxidizon. 
you don't have that location, that rotation in lawns. But yeah, I mean, you know, in the warm season turf, you've got more modes of action to rotate to things like endazaflam and your, you know, your very long chain fatty acid inhibitors like metolachlor and uh, tower and the fenamid. Yeah. yeah. So, and there's probably, um, well, there's, I'm not even thinking of, but. Well, I mean, and it's been an interesting kind of start to the warm season year with goosegrass, Travis, right. With, you know, the way our spring in the Southeast has gone, it hasn't been optimal, I'd say, for Bermuda grass. It's been kind of a series of starts and stops. And I know you and I have both had a couple of calls on a sequential coming in to make a sequential pre-application, but I'm not sure about the health of my Bermuda grass. Right. And, you know, I mean, I think that that's an interesting kind of thing to unpack because, you know, one of our premier goosegrass AI spectacles are pretty carry some injury risk in Bermuda grass that I know you've worked on, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. And um, you, you bring up a good point there when you talk about, you know, making sequential applications or kicker apps, uh, booster apps, whatever you want to refer to them as. And, uh, you know, if the health of the Bermuda grass isn't, isn't ideal and it's not actively growing, you know, you really need to, you know, proceed with caution when you're thinking about products like indazoflam, which can, um, you know, you hesitate to say lock up, but it can certainly, um, you know, slow down Bermuda grass from, from spreading and uh, spreading laterally. And uh, so, you know, if you, if you can, you know, wait until, um, and I realize it's a juggling act with based on germination and emergence, but, you know, with springs like this, um, you know, you really want, before you start making those sequential applications, you really want to be, to feel good about the health of the Bermuda grass. Given, given, and this is a totally naive question, but given the, the, uh, the challenge associated with that, if you had Bermuda grass that was maybe slow to get going, would it make sense to almost adopt a like pre post pre post kind of strategy versus pre's and then coming in after and doing a post. Right. That's a very good approach. And the problem, the, well, the potential problem is, you know, as far as post-emergent herbicides and Bermuda and zoysia for goosegrass, you know, you're, you, you have a very short list of options and you, they have to be very, the goosegrass plants have to be, you know, very, very small to get consistent uh, control, but absolutely, you know, having a post-emergence in the tank with a residual product in the tank is absolutely a good approach. Um, it's just with goosegrass, you're really limited on what those post options are. Gotcha. Well, and, and Brandy, you know, we, you and I talk all the time about how pathology and weed science interact, but we don't talk about the interaction enough. You know, I was on a course this week and, you know, they, they've seen, little bit more mini ring on fairways they've seen spring dead spot on fairways they're attributing a lot of that to not only the weather that we've had for the, the you know this spring but also just the cumulative effect of increased play um because some of the, the the traffic stress and from carts and golfers layering on top of this now um making their weed control decisions a little bit more uh complicated than they have been in the past yeah, for sure. With with golf kind of booming in after you know lockdown and then post lockdown, that's gonna that's gonna change the dynamic a bit. I mean, because like mini ring, for example, that's a, a stress related pathogen, right? 
it typically, yeah, you see it, uh, you see it pop up uh, kind of mid to late summer as the turf starts to slow its growth as, as the Bermuda starts to slow down its growth. Um, and then a lot of what you see in the spring is residual disease activity that was present in the fall that just has never been taken care of. And it just is hanging around and you're, you sit there and look at it until the grass starts to grow again. And that's exactly what this situation was, what they, they, they didn't get onto a, uh, get onto the block of kind of accepting or maybe knowing full bore that they had many ring issues. And now they're staring at those symptoms, um, here and well now may. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, I just, I just gave a presentation to, uh, the superintendents in Alabama about, uh, mini ring and about how important making those, those late summer applications are on Bermuda grass greens predominantly. But, but if you have areas of mini ring pressure other elsewhere, that like getting those applications out in the late summer before the grass starts to grow, cause you don't see symptoms, the disease, the, the thing that's interesting about mini ring is mini ring is, uh, is, is Rhizoctonia zia, which we think of in uh, the cool season world as leaf and sheath blight, which has a temperature optimum that is usually higher than that of Rhizoctonia solani. So it's active and growing at temperatures that are much warmer than you typically think of as traditional brown patch weather, like upper 80s, low 90s, mid 90s. That's when Rhizoctonia zia is really actively growing. So if you then convert that over into a uh, a, a conducive warm season environment, that's like peak growing weather for your warm season grasses. So you have this fungus that's growing and potentially infecting the turf when you'll never see the symptoms to develop because the grass is rapidly turning over its leaf tissue and you're just not seeing any symptoms. But the moment that that plant starts to dip down its growth rate, that's when you start to see symptom development and it's too late to really get aggressive with fungicide applications and recover anything. And so getting those, you know, preventative applications out prior to symptom development is very uh, important part of, of effective mini ring control. And then you add in traffic and all of that kind of stuff with disease activity. And then you weren't on the program early enough. And then that, that, that those late summer, early fall applications are so critical because if you don't get those down, you're going to sit and stare at it until you get to that weather again uh, in the following year, because it's just not going to recover. Yeah. Then you've got to choose between the four herbicides Travis has on the screen here to put, <laughs> what are you going to put down with um, some uncertainty on your Bermuda I got a, grass? I got a lot of problems with goosegrass in areas <laughs> like this. Travis, you want to walk us through what's on the screen? Yeah, yeah. Can you see? Is yep. it maximized now? Okay. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to take uh, just a couple of minutes to to help uh, you know drive home this point about residual herbicides or pre-emergent herbicides. And you know, here's just a, a list of a few. Obviously, it's not a comprehensive list, but a few of the herbicide pre-emergent herbicides we use specifically in turf. And this column over here on the right is is the aerobic. In other words, the aerated or oxygen containing half-life in soil. And this, so, you know, don't overthink it. This is the amount of time required for half of that active ingredient uh, to be degraded or otherwise dissipated 
uh, in a soil system. And of course, that's what we're thinking about when we're talking about pre-emergent herbicides and efficacy against annual weeds and turf. So obviously you all can, can see the values here. Prodiamine being moderately uh, persistent, pendimethalin being a little bit shorter, oxidizing on average being about 60 day aerobic half-life and endazoplam or spectacle, which we've talked about a fair amount today, uh, being more persistent than, than, than the other pre-emergent herbicides we have. Now, what, what, do the, what does this mean or how does this equate to amount of control? You know, everybody wants to think that, well, the longer uh, the herbicide persists, the more uh, control I get, which is correct on one hand, but you also have, uh, you know, differing sensitivity among different weed species. And there's a lot going on here, but let me just kind of distill it down quickly. So these, these white bars, if you will, uh, are four different bars. One's for signal grass, barnyard grass, crabgrass, and then here on the bottom um, is doveweed. Okay, crabgrass, everybody's familiar with. Doveweed, some of you probably are, some of you may not, but you, you'll be familiar with it in the next couple of years if you aren't already. Uh, and barnyard grass and signal grass, you may say, why is this guy talking about this in turf? We don't have those in turf. Well, in sod production, they're actually a significant uh, problem. And the reason we've in, reason we included it in this work is because goosegrass, as bad as we talk about how problematic it is, it actually has some pretty fickle dormancy mechanisms and it can be kind of, uh, kind of tricky to work with uh, in greenhouse and growth chamber experiments. So what's going on here? And th these four lines are in Dazaflam and this, these are actual values from persistent studies that were done in Pinehurst, North Carolina. Uh, over two years. Uh, this bottom line here is three ounces of product applied per acre. Uh, the second from the bottom or the purple line is 4.5 ounces, the green line being six ounces, the red line being nine ounces, which is, you know, a labeled rate, but certainly we don't recommend uh, that high of a rate as a single application. Now what's going on here is this is the amount of endazoflam remaining over time, okay? So this, this, these applications were actually made on March 9th, and then these uh, values are the amount of endazoflam remaining at various times after the application. Now, these white bars, if you will, the width of them uh, is, is generally when these species germinate and emerge. And these are based on 20-year data from Raleigh, North Carolina. So not that much different than, than, than East Tennessee. So again, the width of the bar kind of tells you when it germinates along this calendar time frame. The height of the bar, if you will, on this uh, figure says how much is required to obtain 90% uh, control of, of these particular species. Again, doveweed and crabgrass being very, very problematic uh, in turf, signal grass and barnyard grass, not that much in highly managed turf, but uh, we use these as a surrogate for goosegrass timing, and actually goosegrass uh, germinates longer than signal grass and barnyard grass. So the point here is that, you know, crabgrass, you know, when, you know, when several of us started, you know, a few years ago, you know, uh, crabgrass uh, was the focus of much of this research. But the reality of it is that most of the herbicide, pre-emergent herbicides that we use, they're very, very effective against crabgrass. And as you can see here, you know, because crabgrass has a relatively narrow window of germination and emergence, and it's relatively uh, sensitive to endazoplam. So regardless of the rate that you apply, 
assuming you make a timely application, you know, basically you're, you're going to get acceptable, in this case, 90% or greater crabgrass control. Now, doveweed, uh, as you see here by the lower position of the bar, you know, doveweed is, is, is very sensitive to, to, in this case, indazoflam and other pre- and post-emergent herbicides. The, the challenge with doveweed is that it germinates much like goosegrass. It'll, it'll basically germinate from late spring on into the fall. So, you know, regardless, even if you make a nine ounce application uh, of indazoflam or spectacle, you know, much of that uh, indazoflam has dissipated while you still have goosegrass, excuse me, uh, doveweed uh, germinating. Hence, you're not gonna get acceptable control. And again, signal grass and, and barnyard grass were used as surrogates for um, goosegrass. And as previously noted, uh, you know, much of the product, in this case, in Dazaplam, is gone while you still have uh, goosegrass germinating and emerging. With oxidizing, again, you know, this speaks to the point of, you know, again, doveweed here being the top, so the top bar. So uh, doveweed is just not as sensitive as some of these other species to oxidizing. So when you think about pre-emergent weed control with various residual products, it's not only, you know, how long those products last, but also depending on what species you're going after, the sensitivity of those species to, to whichever compound you're looking at. Uh, and I'll end with this, you know, when we think about, you know, how long, so the crux of pre-emergent efficacy is, you know, how long that product lasts. And although we're talking about goosegrass here, uh, you know, this is more of an issue, particularly when you talk about POA, because it's a longer season. And in many cases, it's a, a wetter season. But so we talked about the aerobic half-life of these compounds in, in soil, and there's various adaptive or soil-related uh, factors that impact persistence. And, you know, a, a classic one is, you know, just anaerobic soil. And when you think about anaerobic soils, they don't have to be flooded soils. They can just be saturated soils. But you see that, uh, you know, predominating the half-life of an aerobic system is, you know, 60 to 70 days. In an anaerobic system, it goes down to 12 days. The same thing with pendomethylin. So, you know, the point is there's a lot of factors that imp impact uh, you know, the uh, efficacy of these residual compounds. And, you know, like Matt mentioned earlier, you know, wherever the weeds were this year or last year, they're going to be there in future years. So, you know, use that as, a, as an opportunity to, to map areas and plan your management programs accordingly to, you know, to optimize efficacy. I believe the good Dr. Horvath has a question. Dr. Gannon, does that mean, is that why when, when I have a really wet year, I get breakthrough of my pre-emergent products. Is that part winner, of the reason? Winner, winner. Gosh, that's just Travis, makes sense. The point you brought up too about the extended germination of that, you know, goosegrass throughout the year. We don't have that residual pre-emergence there. And to Brandon's point, the interesting thing is in cool season turf, you know, especially if we get a wet year, the turf health also declines as we go through the summer. That turf is on the ropes as we get to July and August. And so especially in those wet years, I think in cool season turf, where you, again, it's declining throughout the year and that goosegrass is going to be very competitive. Those are the years where you really need to have those post-emergence herbicides on hand and be, and be scouting because at that time of year, goosegrass advances rapidly through the development stages and your herbicide options, especially in bentgrass, get limited pretty quick once those plants start to tiller. So, well, and I think that's a, a 
key takeaway from today for everybody listening, particularly those folks that might be working in lawn care or uh, even in the golf market too. Um, you know, we, we may have just seen goosegrass emergence start uh, here in the Southeast, but it's going to continue throughout the summer and maybe even into late August or early fall. And having a plan for that is going to be important if you want to have um, goosegrass free or as close there to it turf as, as possible. I'm going to really quick before we run out of time, because we promised these folks we would get them out of here by 1230. I'm going to share this. This is for our golf course superintendents uh, that may be with us today. This is your uh, Golf Course Superintendents Association of America approved pesticide credits. Um, so I don't know what this error message is. I'm going to just keep going. Um, this has nothing to do with pesticide credits, um, but it's just for GCSAA education points. You want to report your event approval code 999-241-4731959 and make sure um, that you uh, report today's date uh, when you submit this to the Golf Course Superintendents Association of America. As I said at the beginning of the session, anything to do with pesticide credits uh, has already been captured and Zoom has made sure that you, um, you will get the pesticide credits that you need. Any parting shots before we let these people go, folks? No, thanks, that was a good discussion. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's my, uh, it was a pleasure to interact with you all. Great. All right, well, I, I enjoyed it, guys. It's always fun to talk about weeds. Next month, we will uh, take a little bit of a segue. I'm going to be a first-time, long-time caller into a sports show here and let Dr. Horvath talk about summer diseases in our June edition um, with Joe Roberts from Clemson and Paul Koch uh, from the University of Wisconsin. Um, but until then, we will see you next time. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, everyone.